Hi, this is Mary Beth Highland, author of Permission to Be Human, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringel. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringel here, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Mary Beth Hyland. Mary Beth is the founder and chief visionary of Spark Vision and brings a decade of experience transforming workplace cultures into productive, connected communities. She's committed to values-based mindfulness in the workplace. Her thought leadership in workplace culture has appeared in the Washington Post, HuffPost, Forbes, and the Wall Street Journal. Mary Beth lives in Baltimore, Maryland, and is here to talk about her book, Permission to Be Human, The Conscious Leader's Guide to Creating a Values-Driven Culture. Welcome, Mary Beth. Thanks so much for having me today. Mary Beth, it's such a pleasure to be with you. Tell me, when you were growing up, who's somebody who influenced and inspired you? I would say from my earliest memories, it would be hard to pick just one of them, but my grandparents, both of my grandparents. My grandmother was a powerhouse as a nurse, and she ran her nurse station in her hospital. My grandfather was an engineer and together they had what I saw to be true love. They were the couple who showed me what it looked like to have a healthy, loving relationship and to also love their work and to really care about that as a part of what gave them purpose in their lives beyond their families and relationship to each other and all the other hobbies that they were interested in. So what was an example or something that signaled to you that they had a healthy, loving relationship. What did you notice? One of the things that was embarrassing as a little kid was that I'd walk in the room and they'd be making out with each other. So I'd say, oh no, they're like, oh, this is because we love each other. And it was just one of these things that it was so apparent that they were in love and not in the, oh, like PDA, too much is going on here, but rather they just delighted in each other's presence. They enjoyed, they loved going back and forth when they shared their stories, they would build off of each other. And they made a really important point to pass on their wisdom and directly speak to what was important when it came to how you showed up as an individual person and in a relationship as a leader in the community. That is such a great gift to have that example. This is how people who care about each other at that level behave with each other. So you had that example growing up. And I'm sure that you look back on it now. As an adult, we look back and say, wow, that is really valuable and rare to have that level of open communication and the directness to be able to communicate in a way that a child understands and makes him or her feel safe. Early on in the workplace, do you remember making a choice or having a discussion that was somehow a reflection, their love for their work or a way that they treated other people? Oh my gosh, great question. There's just so the reason I said great question is because I have so many examples just piling forward, coming forth. And one of the things that always comes to mind for me was really with my grandmother. She was in her early 90s when she she passed away a few years ago. So for someone in her generation to be so forward thinking and accepting of other human beings, she would make a point to talk to us about the way that she loved people who had different types of families. She loved people who didn't look like her. She loved people who had different ways that they identified their sexuality. She always said, as long as they're 
a loving person, there's no reason not to love them. Why would I ever be upset about somebody's choices when it comes to things that matter to their hearts or because of the way they look or, or something like that? She went out of her way to communicate that to us. Just watch her act that way everywhere we went, every single place that we went. Like sometimes it was a little like sketchy. It's like, all right, grandma, you don't have to actually make friends with everyone because she would just go up to anybody to introduce herself when they get to know them and not in an old senile lady way, but that's how she always was. She just always was knew there was a connection there and she knew that it was a fun gift to figure out what it was. What about in your early work life? Do you recall a time when you did something that mirrored the way that your grandmother treated people? And it might not have been a choice you made in that discussion or in that particular situation if it hadn't been for her influence in your life. Yeah, I would say 100%. It wasn't just my grandmother. My mother also embodied these qualities. And I went to international school as a kid. And I grew up in a neighborhood where I was the minority in the neighborhood. So I was very much somebody who was raised believing that there's something beautiful about all different kinds of people. And it's our job to figure out what that is. Not that we're all the same, but that we all have these gifts inside of us. When I took over a young professionals program in my job prior to starting my own company, I was at United Way. I was running the young professionals program and was a very diverse group of individuals who were coming to our meetings and were a part of the community. The president of the organization pulled me aside and say, how are you doing this? We don't have this kind of diversity anywhere. Honestly, I was startled and a bit embarrassed for him and a little bit offended that it was that type of a response versus, I don't know, it was just, it was one of the things that it was shocking to me because I didn't even know what he was talking about until he pointed it out. What was the example he was pointing out? I sold out every Every single event we ever did and then some. So looking around the room, he'd walk in and he'd say like, how in the heck are there this many people here? And how in the heck did you get them not to look like each other, right? Like, how did you get this to actually be a diverse group? Not just people who are there because they're checking a box, but they're really engaged. They're really like getting their hands dirty. They're really talking to each other. They really care about the leadership of this community. It made me pause and think about what are those qualities and and what are those things that maybe other people weren't doing or thinking about that came more naturally and not strategically. And I want to make sure I have this um, specific representation. It was intentional, right? There's a difference between intentionality and strategy. Intentional for there to be inclusion, intentional for there to be a sense of belonging with whoever was attracted to the program and making sure that people who maybe didn't know that they had access were aware. And that was a part of my job. I wound up being able to actually talk to him about cultivating relationships with people who don't look like you. By no means am I a diversity, equity, inclusion coach or anything like that, but rather just like a human being who this has never been a barrier in my life. I know it's because of the way I was raised from my mother and my grandmother of just, I didn't understand what other people's challenges were with it because I grew up with people who looked different than me. So it wasn't this thing I had to try to wrap my head around. Although obviously when I got older, it was an experience of doing much deeper work and understanding my privilege as a white person and understanding that this is not normal, the way that I was raised and the way that I was instilled that wisdom from from my family. But that's a really important part of being able to create these spaces. You say in Permission to be Human, that workplace culture isn't just about the goals, strategies, and structure of an organization, but it's about the feelings and emotions that you experience while working. You further go on to say that different phrases can be useful in assessing your own workplace culture. 
either the way things are done around here, the average of everyone's behaviors, or what's your emotional experience. From your perspective, what makes it so hard to talk about culture, and what can we do about it so that managers and leaders find it easier to address these issues and at least put them on their agenda? I think what makes it so hard is that it's constantly changing. So if you were to take a snapshot of your culture today, it could be entirely different tomorrow if there was some kind of thing that rattled the whole team or something that got everybody pulled them all together and ignited them towards a greater sense of purpose. It's a fluid experience that people would love to just set in stone and set it and forget it. That's just not how culture work. It, it, it exists every day, whether we do something about it or not. For the teams who are ignoring it or tolerating it or looking the other way or whatever it may be, gossiping about it. Those are the teams that have so much more of a struggle. Those are the teams who are just like allowing culture to be what it is versus being thoughtful about what are the emotions, the feelings, the experiences that we want to create? How can we get feedback to understand where are we right now? I think there's great things with surveys and I talk about them in my book, how you can create benchmarks through surveys. But I think they can also be a little bit dangerous because we want to know that we made it from a five to a six or an eight to a 10 or whatever versus what are actually the stories behind these numbers? What was going on in this experience? Managers have said to me in conversations, I understand that there's more to culture than just meeting our benchmarks, our KPIs and our business objectives. If we're working and everything's going okay, why is it important to focus on these other areas, which they are not as comfortable or competent in? Why go into that scary unknown place when things seems to be working okay. I would say that really depends on what the team is interested in. For some teams, that is fine. Like, I, I'm not here to say, like, every single team needs to do deep emotional healing work together. We need to understand all of our values and be united through those values. Would that be amazing? Absolutely. Some groups, their values actually are more aligned with wanting to be more introspective and not be sharing in larger groups or really seeing job not as the thing that creates the purpose in life, but rather this, the thing that I do to create the purpose outside of work. So I have a pro maybe a little surprise in my response there. I don't know. I would say for any team who things are going well, you have no idea how much better they can be. You really don't. It can get so much better because it's one thing when a team has me to come in when there's things that are really toxic that need to be cleaned up. It's a whole nother thing if things are going really well and you want them to be going fabulously. That's where I like to work. Can you share an example of a company that brought you in when they had a sense that things could be that much better? Yeah, actually, I, I can talk to you about the, the company that my whole book is named after. So, I've been working with, this is a family-owned construction company. They have been around for, I think, 60 years now. They've got about 60 employees on their team. And their CEO, David Swerno, who I name him in the book, so I know he's cool with me sharing this here. He approached me originally because before we started working together, they had some really lovely programs for their company. Thanksgiving, they would do turkeys that they would donate and the whole team would come together and get all these things done. Just years went by and some of those things fell to the wayside and they already had a fabulous culture. He just wanted to reignite things that he didn't have the capacity to reignite and didn't understand where were the opportunities. Having worked with them going into 
for years. This is an experience where every year we were chipping away. So we started with understanding what are the core values of this organization? How can we really identify those words that are both intrinsic motivators of the team, those individuals, but also they are representative of their industry and the work that they're doing. And through that process, it was amazing because while the team already had powerful connections, they had respect for each other, there's little to no turnover that happens there. It was an experience where people were like, I have never knew this about the person that's sitting across from me for the last 25 years we've been working together. So this just kept happening where more stories were being shared, more people were having opportunities to collaborate on projects related to the values. Eventually got to the point where when the pandemic hit and our work became a remote experience like everybody else, we started to really ramp up big time in their value of friendliness to have them know each other better. The CEO came in on one of our planning calls and this is David and he said, we have been doing this work for so long and we've been doing it in person together. And now we're doing it remotely and separated. I've never felt a deeper connection between the staff. I've never felt like we had each other's backs in the way that we do right now. I know it's because of the work that this team has been igniting. We have given everyone here permission to be human. That's a a wonderful testament to a company that had a culture that was ready to take the next step up. In every company, there are culture keepers, those who reinforce and are aware of the cultures and values of an organization. They're also culture killers, people who are acting against those values and norms for different reasons. Can you explain about what awareness managers need in order to be effective in identifying and then responding appropriately to both culture keepers and culture killers? So culture, just in a nutshell, you probably understand what culture killers and culture keepers are even without describing them, but I'm going to take a moment to describe them before talking about what managers can do. So culture Keepers are the folks who are really embodying the values. They're the ones that people look forward to collaborating with. They are accountable. They're reliable. Spread positive energy in everything they do. It's not because they're paid to do it. It's because that's who they are. And culture killers on the other side of the spectrums are the ones who really aren't invested in that side of the work. They are people who often will take their emotional issues out on the team. Very low levels of self-awareness. They're the kind of people who drain the room. They'll suck the energy dry. If you're put on a project with them, you're like, oh my gosh, do I really need to go do this? One thing to note is that we've all been both. I think that what you're talking about really are behaviors that any of us could engage in at any time, not necessarily a label of a person. Is that right? That's a beautiful way of putting it. Yes. It's behaviors that we all have those moments where we're not showing up as our best self that day because we, we're just not there. This is where we have to give ourselves permission to be human without taking it out on others. On the other side of it, we also have, know what it's like to be the person that people are feeling energy around because we have these wonderful gifts to bring to the table and having the safety to do that. So for anyone who's in a management position and is looking to identify these qualities or their, these characteristics, 
tips, I would encourage you to start with yourself. Start with yourself. It's so much fun to label other people and to be able to say, oh, this is where they're really awesome. Here's what their areas of opportunity are. But really in the same way that I just talked about, we've all been, we've all been both. One of the things that I am 100% guilty of, which is in that framework of killer is gossip. Somebody who gossips about an issue instead of really addressing it. I came from several cultures in the past where gossip was really a form of power within the organization. It was something the leadership team did and they invited you to be a part of it. So you felt special that you were on that side of the gossip and all those kinds of things. So listen, I say this to say me too, like I've done it also now that I have self-awareness, now that I've gone through the process of looking in the mirror, going inside first to say, okay, I'm guilty of that. So how can I, without judgment, meet myself right there and see where I can clean up? Where can I clean up my own behaviors? The next time Bill comes to me and says, you should hear what happened with this such and such, my response could be, have you talked to them about that? What have you done to address that? I think that a key aspect of this is for managers to first of all, recognize that each of us has engaged in both types of behaviors. What we want to do is bring more of our behaviors onto the side of culture keepers rather than culture killers, because you're not going to rise in an organization if you're the culture killer. Secondly, is to realize that there are benefits to engaging in these behaviors sometimes, depending upon the rules of an organization. I think you just talked about it where the gossip was a way of rewarding people by separating you from others in your organization. It's not healthy for the organization, but there's always a positive aspect of a behavior, which gives it reinforcement, which gives it life. Isn't that something you've observed as well? Oh my gosh, totally. Oftentimes we'll participate in behaviors on either end of the spectrum because that's what the people in charge are doing. That's what you are saying they're doing it. I should emulate that. I guess that's the behavior that's encouraged here. So let me be a part of that and do it to say that you can't certainly be somebody who sees it as, no, I'm not going to be a part of that. But that is somebody who has self-awareness, right? That is somebody who is evolved in their consciousness. When I was in that place, I was not evolved at all. I was very much a victim of my circumstances, really was just doing what I thought I needed to do to protect myself and to be a part of what the culture norm was. A lot of studies that you've read, that I've read, point out that when employees are satisfied with their workplace culture, they work harder, they stay longer, they produce better quality work. Given the cost of replacing key managers and technical specialists, how is it that company leaders are not giving this more attention, resources, especially when we're in this place now of working remotely largely and needing to address things that aren't addressed as we're just interacting with each other in ways that we could see what's going on? I would argue that they are starting to. They are starting to. And I think that my business has never been more, Have I've never had this volume of requests in my entire life. Because you've had this volume of requests, what is it that people are calling and saying as they open the conversation? What symptoms are they experiencing that are saying, wait a second, we really need to address this now? Burnout, stress, anxiety, overwhelm. That is easily the biggest piece of what individuals and organizations are coming to this table and wanting to have this conversation because in addition to Permission to be Human, the book talking of workplace culture from a place of aligning with your values and your behavior and those kinds of things, it's also directly connected to well-being and having a sense of consciousness and groundedness and, and tools to help you. There's actually a whole chapter in here on conscious leadership and how you can really use mindfulness tools and call values-based mindfulness as a way for stress reduction and 
feeling a, a sense of control in a time when it, it's, can, most of us are feeling very out of control. It's been a very out of control couple of years here. It's a combination of you, there's only, you can't say, oh, let's all meditate for five minutes a day, but yet we're going to keep doing the same behavior. We're being held to the same timetable. Exactly. What's been so powerful about the work that we have the opportunity to do is it, it does that in tandem of teaching people tools and skills and things they can actually do like right now when you're really stressed out and overwhelmed, here's a technique. How can you evolve your own way of being so that you respond from a place of sage versus uh, saboteur? How can you do it from a way you're actually leading from alignment with the values versus your own stress burnout is just taking over. You can't give more than you have and at least unconditionally. You start resenting other people for not working as much as you or not being as stressed as you are or whatever it might be. It's been super powerful to be able to, just like when you asked me about the manager, helping people start with themselves. How can I give myself permission to be human today so that I can learn what that feels like and then be able to give that to others? Here are a few more markers that I've read in the culture code and that you've written about as well, is that people in every level of an organization are looking for three things. They're looking for psychological safety, the ability to be vulnerable, and a sense of purpose. What are the types of characteristics that appear in workplaces that don't provide these essentials? What are some of the symptoms that are cropping up that you've seen from some of the companies that have been contacted? This is actually companies that aren't contacting me too. The majority is that we have been playing pretend like everything's the same. We're just at home. And it's gone on for so long now that people have been, there are no boundaries. That idea of psychological safety, there's very few people who feel like they can say, I'm burnt out. Like I can't do this. I'm stressed out. They're afraid they're going to lose their job. If they say something, how will they get another job? And will it be the same amount of money? And what will their insurance be like? What I'm finding is that most people have literally never said out loud, I'm overwhelmed. I'm stressed. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to set a bound because they just don't have a, a, a space in which they know how to do that. A lot of the teams that are asking me to come in and whether it's a keynote or a workshop or training or whatever it might be, they're really hoping that I'm going to be the first person to open the door to say it's safe if you want to come in here. But what's key is that the, the organization actually embodies that message versus people feeling, okay, that was really nice when Mary Beth was here, but now she's gone and it's not safe anymore. So what are a couple steps that organizations that you've worked with can take, or even those that are just listening to us talk about it now, that they could take that makes it safer for people to say that and be supported rather than marginalized or ignored? Yeah, so this is where I think having a pulse check to start an anonymous pulse check survey, just asking people, even if it's one question, on a scale of one to 10, how comfortable do you feel sharing your honest experiences with your manager, right? Or sharing what your workload is or whatever, there may be a specific thing that you think may be going on, or you could just zoom out to just psychological safety overall. But just getting, just like a quick pulse check to understand, because here's the thing, people aren't going to open up to you about their issues with psychological safety if there isn't psychological safety. Kind of a chicken and egg issue. Exactly. That's why I'm not always like the number one fan of surveys, but I think that in these kinds of circumstances where people, I've literally been in a position before where I had to fill out an evaluation for my supervisor. I didn't answer honestly because I was afraid of what was going to happen to me because she knew it was me. Like it was technically honest, but I was the only person that reported to her. So it was like, it was going to be apparent that was her, the subordinate response. I was like, I don't even know 
know how to answer this because I know there's going to be something that happens to me afterwards. Like, yes, consequences. Is it worth it? Is this kind of passive aggressive? So I've been there. I've been in that seat of the person who didn't have psychological safety and even went to HR about things. And HR would say, what are you going to do? You want to leave? Those kinds of responses that are just like... And that's the best that they knew how to handle that situation. Many HR leaders and departments aren't organized or trained to deal with those kinds of questions. Yeah. So I'd say you said what are a few things. One, I would say an anonymous pulse check to make sure it's anonymous. If you can get an outside, yeah, I was going to say, and if you can get an outside person to do it, even better because then you can, there's a different level of people feeling safe in that process. And you must share the, you must share them. That is one of the worst things that a company can do is have their team go through something that feels like something's going to change. It's just, oh no, we just wanted to take your time in telling us these things, but we're not actually going to do anything about it. So you need to share, you need to share the responses. And then I would, encourage the leadership to work with the managers and and start to have honest conversations on where are they lacking psychological safety. So it's not just us talking down, but rather let's be honest amongst ourselves. Where am I feeling vulnerable when it comes to certain things? How can that team start to create more psychological safety amongst themselves? Then how do you ripple it out to the rest of the organization? Because I was hired by a team a couple years ago. It was a large tech organization. They had about 600 employees and they, they are an organization where I'm going to, I'm going to keep them anonymous here. We can just call them Sarah, but it's really not about an individual. It's about the company overall. I was hired to come in and to support things like this, creating more psychological safety. I said to the CEO, there isn't psychological safety amongst the executive team. So how could we possibly do this with the other 500 plus people here? The response was, no, we have psychological safety on this team. What are you talking about? So all my interviews that I've had with people, that's been something that's come up that they don't feel that exists. That's what I'd like to work on. Because honestly, any of the work that we're going to do together is only going to be sustainable if there's safety in doing it. Nobody feels like they're going to be put in a position of losing their job or being ostracized or being talked down on or whatever it may be if we don't have that. So it was an experience where ultimately we went our separate ways. And I, and that was the best thing for both of us because it wasn't good for It doesn't feel good as the outside person to give such a feeling of hope to a team of people that the executive team is not going to do the work for it to be sustainable. That's something that you really, before you want everybody else to do it, you got to start with yourself and then you got to start with your level and then you continue doing it because then you can speak from wisdom versus a framework. I had that kind of an issue. On airlines, you've got to put your oxygen mask on first before you help the person next to you. It's a matter of getting your own safety and your own needs taken care of so that you're not looking inappropriately to have it met by the organization or by your team where the power dynamics will go all screwy. Totally. Mary Beth, are you ready for the My Quest for the Best lightning round? I'm ready. So at the beginning of the interview... I asked you about someone who influenced and inspired you and you talked about your grandparents. When you were a teenager, Mary Beth, what's a song that you loved? Oh my gosh. I was so into Britney Spears. I guess I'd have to say Hit Me Baby one more time. That's the first one that comes to mind. I had an unhealthy relationship with Britney Spears in high school. Hit Me Baby one more time. I'm not going to sing it if that's what you're trying to get here. What's the next uh, set of lyrics? Hit Me Baby one more time. I don't even remember. I don't 
don't know what came after that anymore, which I'm actually proud of myself for not remembering that. What was it like when you learned that you were named to the Maryland Women's Circle of Excellence for the first time? You can only be inducted once. So it was a very powerful moment in my life because you have to be a winner of top 100 women throughout the state of Maryland three times, and then you get inducted into Circle of Excellence. You would essentially win four times, and that's how you get into sort of this legacy group. When I won, it, I, I was at the time, and I still think, um, the fastest. So you can't win consecutive years to get into this. I didn't know all these things until later, but I was the fastest and youngest woman in the state of Maryland to ever be inducted into the Circle of Excellence. What was particularly powerful for me is that all of the years before, I was very intentional about saying the things that I knew was going to play to the judges as far as boosting up the global, the international work that I was doing and things like that and talking about revenue and percentage of change and things like that. And this last year when I was nominated, I thought, I'm just going to talk from my heart. I'm never going to get into the circle of excellence. When it asked about my greatest accomplishments, I talked about my own inner healing journey and learning how to love myself exactly as I am and learning how to wake up every day and create something in the world that's an expression of my unique values and what I'm here to do and creating a whole business around that and attracting people into my life as a result of being my authentic self. I literally saved the application because I thought there was no way. There was no way I was going to win. When I won, I just it was really profound. So I know that wasn't a rapid fire answer, but it was a very profound moment in my personal evolution. Thank you for sharing that. Kelly, what would you say is the best advice you've ever received? My supervisor, when I was a graduate student, I ran events in my grad school, the new school, and he taught me what relationship development was. So he helped me to understand that, okay, you're going to be running these events. Great. So now we're going to schedule in-person meetings with the head of security, the person who does ticketing, the person who does the cleanup and the setup, the people who are going to be doing the marketing collateral. And I can't we just email and he's no, you are going to meet with each one of them in person. You're going to ask them what worked really well with the last person what you could do differently, and how you can best communicate with each other. He and I and whoever the other person were, we went around and we did this person by person, and it completely transformed my success in the the relationships that were real because we did that from the front end. We knew each other's faces. We cared about each other as human beings forever changed me of, of recognizing how important those things are to do, to take that time. Do you remember the name of your advisor who walked you through that process? John Green. He was, at the time, he was a dean at the new school where I was a student. I've told him many times, and I'll keep telling him, he was easily the most profound person I ever got to work for. So Glennon Doyle, who's the author of Untamed, says that she's given up asking people for directions to places they've never been. What does that quote mean to you? When I was particularly starting my business, I was asking everybody for advice, everybody for advice, mostly people just who I thought made a lot of money. That was pretty much the the people that I was looking towards that I thought they really know how to run a business. And as time went on and I was taking their advice and doing the things everybody else wanted me to be, I realized, oh my gosh, I never asked myself what I wanted to be. I kept taking directions from people who We're nowhere where I wanted to be. It was just some kind of an external checkbox of societal norms of success and not what actually mine were and what were authentic to my own values. It's been really powerful to not only recognize that, 
but to then look for the people who have gone in that direction and build those relationships and um, seek out their wisdom, even if it's not personally, but through a podcast like this one, right? There's so many ways you can gain directions from people who have gone on that path. What's been a criteria that you've changed where you now ask people based on what their accomplishments are so that it's aligned with where you want to go? What's one thing that's important that you're asking about now? I ask them about their values. So I'll ask them, so no surprise, like I do primarily what I do day in and day out is help people understand what their values are and how can you align your behaviors with that, whether that's within yourself, at work, at home, in your relationships, all those things. So I would start by asking that question, what are your core values? What are your top three core values and how do you live them right now? All right. So I'll ask you, what are your top three core values and how does that show up in your work in your daily life? Yeah. So my personal core values, my number one is easily unity with nature. Oh my gosh, easily. How does that show up for me? So I have a policy that if a meeting gets canceled, then I go spend time in nature. So like earlier today that happened and it was like, all right, let's head out. Let's go spend some time at our favorite park. Let's go make a connection to, I have a special tree that I spend a lot of time with. And so it's worked in, it's worked into the way that we operate. In addition to, I also train horses. So I'm on a quest to become a Cowgirl. We're actually opening a retreat center out in Idaho. We just bought our first tiny home in October for the properties. It's very exciting. I have visions of waking up and seeing all these horses out around me. So I work with horses at least twice a week. There's many times that it would be so easy to say, oh, I don't have time. I don't have time to go to the farm. I'm too tired. This doesn't make sense. But even just last week, I was out in Nashville for a really beautiful opportunity out there. And my PR team wanted me to go a day earlier and get more press when I was there. I ultimately pulled the plug on it and said, no, I go spend time with my horse. Like I got to go be with him. And that was actually more important. So being able to truly choose it as a form of well-being versus a nice idea when I have time for it but rather it's woven into pretty much every day's experience. That's when it really counts when you're making choices that other people say, well, you could win this way, but that's not the game I'm playing. You wanted to win in the game you're playing. That's what mattered. Authenticity, for sure. If I have to show up as feel like I have to be somebody else, I'm not in the right place. And it's just immediately a no-go. If I ever feel like, oh, this isn't a place that's not going to appreciate what I have to offer in being myself. And that happens often. We can't, we're not for everybody. That's the thing. It's like not taking it personally. Like these are not my people and these are my people and that's okay. It's totally cool. But really listening to that, not trying to force it if it's not a good fit. A lot of people want me to be something that maybe they knew me as in the past. It really feels good to be able to say, I so appreciate your interest. I don't do that work anymore. These are the things that I do if you're interested in that. But best of luck to you in, in really being able to do that. And that was really what that circle of excellence piece was about too, was about authenticity and, and really learning who that person was, taking the time to uncover that individual inside of me and still learning who she is every day is, is just such a gift. I'd say my third personal core value that's the most important would be connection. So I always want to, like my grandma, in the beginning of this, how we started this conversation, I always want to be an individual who people feel comfortable making a connection with, who we can easily find that common ground, who whether we express it in just our energy or in words, 
words that there is a place psychological safety as a result of feeling true connection because of through that piece of authenticity of being able to share myself it, it naturally creates connection with others and gives them the, that permission to be human too and share that side of themselves too so that's the, those authenticity and connection are pretty much go with me everywhere I am whereas unity with nature is one that I carve out more space to ensure that it's a part of everything got it so in the last year look back and think what would be the most important habit skill or belief that you've eliminated that's brought you the most personal personal satisfaction so eliminated is such a powerful word because it implies it's not coming back it's if I said that it might not be truthful because I do think that there are things that I let me put it this way I have been made much more aware of and are on an intentional daily practice of keeping it that way of keeping it that way so given that context what's one thing that you've eliminated that's brought you the most pleasure or personal satisfaction my work addiction how have you eliminated the addiction i know that it doesn't eliminate the work but you can still deliver good work without having the addiction writing it yeah i've struggled with a work addiction i was diagnosed with a work addiction i didn't even know you could be diagnosed with a work addiction but it was based off of really inappropriate expectations really it came from really not really hating myself and putting myself in a place of unrealistic expectations and not enoughness and all that stuff. So I've done it kind of work. And then when my book came out, it came back. It all came, all of that stuff from the past flooded back in. Oh, here I got it. I got to go back into work addiction if I'm going to be successful. Cause that was, I had so many more years of programming in that way than I have in the way that I am now of being more of a mindful leader. So it took me a good, I'd say, two of a downward spiral to say, nope, like really, I could see, have that self-awareness. I was really lying to myself for for that whole time. I was able to say, whoa, okay, no, this is work addiction. I'm very grateful to say that it, I have not relapsed since that, that we really put the brakes on it, which was back in September, but it's a daily practice of recognizing there's time tomorrow. This is not one step at a time without judgment of face. It's not a rush. I'm so glad that you put the brakes on something that wasn't healthy for you. I know that it's really hard when you're your own boss to have that awareness and that accountability to yourself and to hold yourself to those standards. And you have also just modeled for us that psychological vulnerability, feeling the safety to share something like that, which shows, look, not only are we human, we're not perfect. We have steps forward, we have ambitions, and sometimes we slide back, and then we have to get back and correct course to go forward. So for these and so many other reasons, Mary Beth, I want to thank you for joining me on my quest for the best, to share ideas from your book, Fully Human. Let me get that straight. I want to thank you once again. What I'll do is I'll excise that out. Before we say goodbye for now, where can we find out more about you and your work online? Yeah, so our website is sparkvisionnow.com. And I'm super active on LinkedIn. So if anybody wants to connect with me on LinkedIn, I love continuing the conversation there. Meredith Highland, author of Permission to Be Human, The Conscious Leader's Guide to Creating a Valued-Striven Culture. I want to thank you once again for joining me on my quest for the best. Thank you for having me. Mary Beth, one other thing that I'll mention is that we'll point in the show notes to sparkvisionnow.com, as well as your social media, as well as places to buy the book to make it super easy for people to find you and what you're up to after listening to this episode. So thank you once again for joining me on My Quest for the Best. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on My Quest for the Best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. 
Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback, and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on My Quest for the Best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.